gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, come check out our stuff. You know all that stuff. I want to get this thing started. So, um, um, today we are recording this on Tuesday, November 2nd, but this probably will not air until like next week to be closer to the pub date of my guest's new book. Um... And today is election day in Virginia, so we, um, almost all of the available punditry right now is insanely stupid, so there's really no reason to talk about too much on the news politics, so it's a nice little sweet spot, um, but I just thought you should have that context. And with that context, let me say, welcome back to The Remnant. This is, I believe, his second time on this podcast. Uh, my former NR sort of colleague and my current AEI colleague Jay Cost, welcome back to the room. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Um, and so, uh, as I mentioned, you have a new book out. We just did a video thing, which will appear after this podcast comes out. But uh, for AI, we'll eventually figure out how to put it in the show notes or something. But um, about your new book, James Madison, um, Americans, America's First Politician. So we sort of start there. Um, you are a PhD historian. I first knew you uh, as a anonymous, <laughs> yeah, cephalogical polling blogger. But we can get to that in a little bit. But now you've written several books about sort of the founding era. You'd already written a book about sort of the competing visions of Madison and um, and Hamilton. Why did you think the world needed another Hamil uh, another Hamilton book? I mean, Madison. Book. I <laughs> well, this is all part of my grand strategy to get a musical made of James Madison, of course. So this is step two of X number of steps. Yeah, yeah. X is a big number. Yes, I'm X afraid. is a very large <laughs> number. Um, well, I, I am. I mean, I'm a fan of Madison. I like him. I think he's interesting. Uh, there's a lot to admire about him. He's really intellectually supple, and he's really a complicated figure. He's not easily put into boxes. So as a personal research interest, it's just he's interesting. Um, I think for readers, though, I think that the challenge with Madison has long been that he's not been very well understood as a whole person. Usually what you see is Madison will be understood as a philosopher and will look they'll look at like the Federalist Papers. And then if you want to think bigger than that, you have to go to a biography, but biographers are not going to have the same intellectual interests as a political philosopher. So what I wanted to do was write kind of an intellectual biography of him, um, or at least it's not a purely intellectual biography. I talk about his life a lot. But what I tried to bring out was that his life itself helps us understand his political theory because he wasn't just a writer of politics. He was a practitioner of politics. And he was a really good one. Too. That's the other thing I really wanted to bring out because usually the Madison that we know is the Madison from the Federalist. But when I, especially researching my last book, I was just amazed at how good he was at politics and how frequently he defeated his political opponents. Uh, I mean, I think for me, the most extraordinary thing is he, he just absolutely crushed Patrick Henry in the 1788 ratifying convention, which is remarkable because Henry was 
the titan of Virginia politics. And then later on, Henry tries to tap him back by gerrymandering his fifth congressional district um, into a seat that's favorable for the anti-federalists. And then Madison wins the district anyway. It's just remarkable to me. His whole life is filled with things like that. And you never see him coming, too, because he's five foot four. He weighs 100 pounds. He, he, if it wasn't for his receding hairline and his deep set eyes, you, you would think he's a little boy. You just people never saw him coming, which is what's so remarkable about him. So but was he a was he a schmoozer? Was he a gladhander? I mean, was he that kind of politician? No, he wasn't. He was very stiff. In public gatherings, he's very stiff and uncomfortable. Now, later on in life, as he gets older and he marries Dolly, Dolly loosens him up. Dolly in herself is remarkable. Um, but he is very good in private conversations. But he is not like um, a Henry Clay, for instance. Henry Clay would be give these great stentorian speeches that would take up three days of the Senate's time. And the ladies of Washington would come and watch because it was a spectacle. Madison wasn't like that. I mean, you look if you look at the records of the Virginia ratifying convention, there's long snippets where the person who was taking notes basically says, I couldn't hear him. Because he talked, I mean, he uh, if if he were in the room doing a podcast, you'd have to turn the volume up way up on because he had a very low voice. Um, he was really good in private conversation, but what he he really had a keen mind for politics. So Madison would be the kind of guy who, like, if you come into a room like in a, in some kind of political combat setting where Madison's your opponent. He will have outworked you. He will have outthought you. He will have anticipated your strategy and formulated some way around it. That was really his distinguishing feature as a politician. Um, so I often say on this podcast and and in conversations generally, I'm a Madisonian. Um, he's sort of he's my founder. Um, um, Largely because of the his conception of, and we talked about this earlier on this other conversation we had for AI, but this this his understanding of politics as sort of a rich ecosystem with lots of parts to it, and um, that the the checks and balances stuff, which gets shortened down in civics language to executive versus legislative versus judicial and blah 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 is a much richer concept under Madison because it's we have we have checks and balances of that sort in every state almost in every county right um but then we have it between states we have it between different factions and that's all part of his sort of grand design um and i think it's something that we're losing as our politics kind of gets nationalized but um why don't you sort of walk through what you know what does it mean to be madisonian where is the uh, you know, you talk about him as a political theorist and as a politician. What is the purest expression of what Madisonian political thought would be, or the, what, what's what's the indispensable part of it? Okay, that's a great question. Um, I would, I think, the way to understand Madison in some respects is to situate him between the other two great intellectuals of the age, Jefferson. Um, we could put Jefferson on the left, so to speak, and Hamilton on the right. He liked the French Revolution. He did like the French, and Revolution. that is a yeah. huge. Problem. Yes. And so Jefferson has a great faith in the masses. And I, it's a very enlightenment faith in the sort of idea of promoting education and literacy that the people are going to be able to govern themselves in ways they had never been able to before. So 
you know, for instance, Jefferson is okay with, you know, that the the the, the tree of liberty has to be refreshed with, by the blood of patriots, right? Jefferson is not going to have a problem with upending the social contract every generation. If a, if a generation wants to do that, they should be allowed to do that. And the implied value there is that they have the capacity to do that. So Jefferson, I would not say he's a small d Democrat, but he certainly, as we... Of the people of that era, he's the closest to that. Hamilton, on the other side of the coin, has a great faith in the natural aristocracy. So not a aristocracy of, you know, inbred people, landowners from England, but like people who, people frankly like Hamilton. That's sort of how he saw himself, right? People of extraordinary talents, unique virtue. The sort of an aristocracy of merit, right? Yes, an aristocracy of merit. For whatever reason, people who are above the typical human condition of ignorance and selfishness. Hamilton thought that those people should be put in charge. And there should be oversight of the masses, but it should be kept to a minimum. So there's a faith value that both Jefferson and Hamilton have. They have faith in one. Madison doesn't have faith in anybody. He is very, uh, in his way, very Calvinist. Um, and it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that his all of his primary and secondary instruction was by Calvinist ministers, and particularly in the Presbyterian tradition at, at the College of New Jersey. Madison ha- believes, and similar to David Hume, and I, his moral, which is ironic because Hume was an atheist, but Madison's moral psychology is very similar to Hume's, that human beings are not capable of ruling their passions on a reliable level. So then the question then becomes, what do we do about this? Because that, in its immediate implication, points to a deep pessimism in the capacity for self-government. Madison's solution, though, is, well, we don't have to have anybody who's particularly virtuous. We'll put all of these sinners, so to speak, into the political arena will force them to compromise with each other, and in their self-interest, they will object to things that are bad for them. Things that can pass through this gauntlet will be things that are in the public interest. As a, you know, I so depending on my audience, I usually analogize it to Star Wars, right? That sort of at the end of well, when we were kids, it was just Star Wars, but now we call it Episode Four. At the end of Episode Four, when Luke's running through the trench, right? He makes it to the end. The other ships fall. So imagine something that can run through a trench like that with checks and balances basically being, you know, the effects to sort of knock it out. Something that can get to the end of that is Madison's bet is that it will be in the national interest and it will not violate the standards of justice. That's his theory. It's And it's a brilliant theory in the sense that it is, I mean, he's drawing, you know, I don't want to suggest that it's unique. I mean, you can go all the way back to Polybius's praise of the Roman Republic for a lot of these ideas, but it is unique in the particularly American context and how it serves as the justification for a continental republic, which is not something um, that, uh, you know, had ever been tried before. Republics tended to be small and they tended to be corrupt, too. I mean, right. you know, the Florentine Republic was not Republican by our standards. So it lays. So that's, I think, the most important aspect of Madison and and. The reason I think that we keep replicating this idea of checks and balances almost instinctively, because deep down we know we can't trust each other, 
So what we'll do is we'll allow them, we'll allow groups, and when they choose not to check and balance one another, when they choose not to exercise a veto over somebody else's proposal, that's a sign the proposal's pretty good. So, um, you know, I keep thinking back to, you know, you know, the the Rawlsian veil of, (laughs) which is this idea that imagine you were a disembodied soul on the outside of, of human existence and you had to design a system that gave you the best likelihood of being having a fulfilling life, but you didn't know if you're going to be born gay or straight, tall or short, black or white, whatever. And so it's, it's a hedge theory, right? And if you knew you were going to be a genius gladiator, you would pick one kind of system. If you thought maybe you're going to be in a wheelchair with, you know, a speech impediment, you might pick a different system, right? And so it's trying to figure out, but that sort of idea, I don't know if it goes back to Polybius, you're better read than I am, but James Harrington, the British, the English political philosopher, he kind of introduced the same kind of notion, which was this sort of basic notion of justice, which was two guys want to split a pie. Um, I can give you the knife and you can cut it any way you want, but then I get first first pick of the piece, right? So there's an incentive structure on both sides to do it about as right as possible, right? And that seems to me when we were talking about this earlier about the Madisonian sort of system about buy-in, about people um, recognizing that if, if you have them in the process enough and you know there's going to be another election down the road, it creates a long-term incentive structure to play by the rules because you know that you're going to have another chance to to win an election, right? I mean, that's sort of like in development theory. Everyone says it's great to hold a first election, but the really important election is the second election. And that seems like, to me, one of the inherent genius things about Madison and his understanding of, of how there is no such thing as the most important election in all of history, because there's always going to be another, there's always going to be another one. Yeah. Um, first of all, it's funny because my dad, when I was kids with my brother, that was his system for making sure there was dessert equity. So it's, <laughs> it's a very, so those of you who are parents out there, you have young children, multiple siblings, that one, one sibling cuts, the other chooses is a surefire winner. <laughs> um, it's interesting too, because, you know, Madison has a more, capacious understanding of what justice is than sometimes what we take to be. If you read Federalist 10, he talks about how policy decisions in Congress or in a legislative setting are actually also questions of justice. And this is the challenge with majority rule is that, you know, if the majority is an unjust majority, if it's just taking something for itself, there's really very little to stop it in a simple majoritarian system. Um, and, you know, the and one of the things that he gives an example of is, you know, tax questions. Um, and, it, you know, it's interesting as well because at the end of his life, this is at what leads to the nullification crisis, is the nullifiers, and they're not entirely wrong about decrying the tariff as being unjust, as being you're taking our wealth from us. And, you know, so usually like today when we think of justice, we usually think of it in a in a legal setting. But if you think about it from a broader, um, you know, almost a philosophical perspective of, you know, protecting your property, protecting not uh, protecting your rights, 
but also protecting your property and making sure that insofar as your property is taken, it's for the common good rather than your property being taken and just given to somebody else because they amount to a numerical majority. And, you know, we were talking about this in the video uh, that we did with AI, um, but there is a uh, nowadays, I think, and you had mentioned this and I agree, especially in the left, there is a faith in majoritarianism that is, I don't think has been fully studied on their side. That particularly, why are majorities, why does a majority have the right to rule? Is it because they're just more than the minority? No, that's not true. Otherwise, the whole notion of justice collapses, right? There's nothing... If a majority necessarily has the right to rule, then there can't be anything that enjoins the majority, right? But we do have all these encumbrances that are placed upon majorities. We have the Bill of Rights, for instance. Um, so if, if majorities were the quickest source or route to justice, we could not have the legal system we have no, today. No, we couldn't. Exactly. Um, and so the and, – and this is something that – you know, Madison and the founders, because they had a, a greater familiarity with the writings of classical antiquity than what we have today. The Greeks especially, I mean, Plato, obviously, but Aristotle, who's much more pragmatic and practical, um, you know, majorities are co corruptible, just like the rule of an aristocracy can devolve into the rule of an oligarchy, the rule of a monarchy can devolve into the to tyranny. So can um, a republic or the rule of the people can devolve into democracy, which they would use pejoratively, or we might call ochlocracy, which is the rule of the of the mob. But there's also another. I think there's another worldview shift that's happened. Um, I think nowadays, without realizing it, we have what I like to call a Star Trek view of human existence, where we're just going to get better, and we're going to get smarter, and we're going to get more enlightened, and we're going to get wealthier, and we're going to be able to do more things. The Greeks and the Romans had a tragic view of human existence. Um, and Polybius calls this the anacyclosis, this tragic cycle of growth zenith and corruption of forms of government, ultimately because human beings are selfish, they're self-interested, and yeah, justice is great, but I don't, like, you don't, nobody wants justice for themselves. We want something better than justice for ourselves, especially insofar as, like, if we've done something wrong, like, we don't, I mean, we might respect the decision, but we don't, that's not what we want. And you multiply that on a society-wide level, you know, the government can become, any form of government can become corrupted. Majoritarian government can and often has become corrupted. And this is, and I, this is a struggle that the founders had. And, and this is why I think one of the values of understanding Madison through the context of his life rather than just his writings is that he had seen in his lifetime the founders had seen a version of Polybius's tragic cycle. Madison is born in 1751. George III comes to the throne in 1760. He's widely celebrated throughout the entire realm, especially after the end of the French and Indian War. But in, from the American perspective, uh, monarchy 
descends into tyranny, which is what Jefferson indicts him as in the Declaration. He's a tyrant. So that's that is, you know, and if you think about it from the perspective of the Americans were happy under the 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 House of Hanover, so the House of Hanover has been corrupted. And then the Americans institute free governments that are democratic on the state level. By the standards of the age, they are pristinely Republican. They are shockingly Republican. The Constitution of Pennsylvania especially. But in state after state after state, you see the same thing. You see a majority get in charge of the government, and then they immediately stick it to the minority. That happens. And it happens like in all kinds of different ways. Rhode Island, the small farmers in charge. So what do they do? They stick it to the creditors. Massachusetts, the financiers in Boston get in charge. What do they do? They stick it to the farmers. Virginia, the Anglicans are in charge. They stick it to the Baptists. It happens all over the place. And not only that, but they start, they are undermining American foreign policy, which is just extraordinary when you think about the J Treaty, not the J Treaty, the Treaty of Paris in 1783 was a remarkably good deal for the United States of America. Great Britain not only agreed to give us our independence, they gave us the rights to fish off of Newfoundland, which was a big win for us, and then they gave us all of the land, basically south of the Great Lakes and east of the Mississippi River. And the handful of concessions that they they impose upon us, one of which is don't mistreat the loyalists. Just let them have their property, pay your debts to the loyalists, pay your debts to British merchants. The state governments wouldn't even do that. And, and so what does that what does that tell you? It tells you, like, from the context of Madison, we see they're in the anticyclosis in the sense that they go from monarchy to tyranny, and then they replace that with a republic, and then you get mob rule. You get 13 petty little mobs. And, you know, then and this is, you know, the other thing about where does Polybius end? He ends in chaos. That's where that's where the anticyclosis ends. The tragic cycle ends in chaos and then it reboots under monarchy as some strong man takes control. And that's what they're looking at as even after the war ends. It's looking like the states are going to be they're already engaging in commercial warfare and that is a surefire way, you know, Commercial warfare has often led to actual warfare, right? It happened to the Dutch and the English in the 1600s. The War of 1812, the World War One, is all downstream of commercial conflicts. And, and so the founders would have less faith than we do today in the wisdom of the majority. And while we today tend to think, oh, well, that's just because they weren't as enlightened as we are, I would actually argue the opposite. On this point, they were more enlightened. They had a better understanding of history than most people today do. They understood not just the history of classical antiquity and the collapse of the Roman Empire, but also they had a framework for understanding the events between 1776 and 1787 that they they were they knew their history better and their understanding of human nature and therefore government was actually more sophisticated than ours even though we have electricity so there's a lot going on there first um i don't want to forget all the other things i want to get to but like this is a bit of a bugaboo of mine. Adam White, our colleague at, at AI, is the guy who kind of settled this dispositively for me. You know, there's this cliche, trope, bumper sticker that you get on the right, including among a lot of smart people who know a lot of smart things and things I don't know. But like even Mike Lee does this every now and then. Um, you know, we're not a democracy, we're a republic thing, right? And 
if you actually go back, this is according, Adam has persuaded me that today we mean by republic this thing that is sort of not necessarily pure democracy. It's got some non-democratic or anti-democratic instruments to it because we it's 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 counterpoised against you know the, the pure democracy kind of stuff and that's the way we talk about it right and the word voting doesn't appear in the declaration in the, the constitution democracy doesn't appear in the constitution that kind of stuff the problem is that in the founding era republican was a word poised against monarchy not against democracy this is a later invention. And so when people say we're a republic, not a democracy, if you tried to say that with the words as defined today in, say, 1780, you'd be saying, we're not a democracy, we're a democracy, because they're basically the same they word. They are. Right? Um, and, I just, I, and there are a lot of listeners who I can guarantee you don't really appreciate that. So when you were saying in the beginning that a lot of these very Republican state governments, like for them, They'd it be sounds democratic. like something else. It, it, it just, it, in the parlance of the day, it meant democratic. Second is, um, on this, what is this wheel? The cycle of anacyclosis. Anacyclosis. Pol like is, yeah. Um, so uh, I am not. I do not have the Star Trek view of things. I just, you know, wrote a book a couple of years ago about how human nature, if we give into it too much, will spell the suicide of the West. So I, I, but I know a bit about like this kind of thing. And and you know, Daniel Borston actually has a wonderful essay, um, about how Saint Augustine broke the wheel of history. And he makes this argument about how people think everything's over. Because there was this argument even back then that the fall of the Roman Empire meant the end of everything. Like, you know, stuff is hitting the fan, right? Yeah. You know, and like when the and you can imagine how an empire that is, had existed for what, nine centuries, to, you know, 11 centuries, whatever it is, um, for that to go, you know, belly up would be a real panic. And he says, but look, it has history hasn't been cyclical. Look at all the great stuff, the sort of Monty Python-esque, what have the Romans done for us stuff, right? Of the aqueducts and the <laughs> right. roads and the pots and the this and the that. And he says, and, and it's, so it's not a Star Trek history, right? You're not going to get St. Augustine, City of God, City of Man guy talking about how everything just gets better on its own, right? I mean, he has a certain theological point of view. But the only reason I bring it up is, is that I think that the, the tendency to see, um, like, I'm, I'm against teleology, both positive and negative. Right. Right. And um, and I can't remember where I was going to go with that, but you can respond to that in a second. And then the other thing is, okay, so the founders, you keep um, bringing up Polybius. Okay. Um, what were the primary historical moments that and, and thinkers that they drew on? And specifically... The, one of the things, and I'm just curious what your take on this is, because I just got into an interesting conversation with Peter Berkowitz about this, and he was he pushed back a bit, and it was interesting. Um, one of the things I was most shocked by when I was working on my book was I just assumed, like, you know when you're going into writing a book, there's certain things you just think would be really easy to research and turn out to be really hard, and there's certain things that you think would be really hard and turn out to be really easy. Um, I just assumed, okay, when I get up to, like, the founding era It'll be really easy to find all sorts of founding fathers saying wonderful things about John Locke because I was taught in high school, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is really just a rewriting of life, liberty, and property, and blah, 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 second treatise, you know, it, all this kind of stuff. And I was stunned to discover that there were a lot of founders who liked Locke, but it was mostly for his epistemology stuff. It was, you know, it was the, 
the the blow he dealt the great chain of being kind of um uh you know nat what they called natural philosophy back then and there's very little evidence that anybody at least in the constitutional convention or that kind of thing even quoted Locke. um uh jefferson i think had a copy of the second treatise there are no notes in it or something like that and um um and then there's this other argument well yeah but Locke lock was so popular that there were a lot of false quotes attributed to him because it was just sort of like um and and particularly in in religious pamphlets and in sermons Locke was invoked a lot and that's very hard to sort of account for in the historical record so anyway with all of that in mind what what were the other than Polybius, praise be upon him. What were the other intellectual philosophical influences that that Madison in particular, but the founders in general, were drawing on? And where do you where do you place Locke in all of that? Um, yeah, I think that's a good point about Locke. Um, I would say there is Montesquieu would have been very influential, and I think Montesquieu relates to the question of you know teleology, right? So the there would have been. Madison was not, his view of politics was not tragic. I think that it's better to say that there, there is a, it's informed by classical antiquity, but there is an enlightenment conceit, which is that what he would have called the science of politics can arrest the tendency of governments to decay, that we can design a government in a way to prevent human nature from destroying it. So I think that's one reason why Montesquieu is so important because Montesquieu is, I think in Madison's view, a, sci a, a scientist of politics. He ends up being important. Um, I think another person of historic, historical importance to them, or at least Madison at a young age, Hume, David Hume, Hume's political writings, I think, were extremely influential on Hamilton, particularly. Um, in, and also Hume's political conservatism is influential on Hamilton. I would say that of the opponents to Hamilton, you get more of the country Whig ideology of Bolingbroke and Cato's letters, which themselves sort of reach back to Harrington. And it's a way for when Madison and Hamilton end up um, fighting each other in the 1790s, that country Whig ideology provides Madison a framework of, um, of how to understand him. And then uh, with respect, um, who's the philosopher or the political economist who thought, you know, populations would eventually decline? And Malthus? Yeah. Madison is, I think there, Madison made a sarcastic comment that he came up with Malthusianism before Malthus did. Um, and the idea of populations eating out their food supplies, that ends up being an influential idea for him. And Jefferson, it's one reason why they're so eager to grab all of New Orleans, uh, all of Louisiana. They had sent Monroe out to France to buy New Orleans and Monroe writes Madison back like, hey, I bought the whole thing. I hope that's not a problem because I didn't have the authorization to do that. Madison <laughs> says, well, I'm so proud, it's amazing. Because that's sort of like Madison has all these sort of interesting and just frankly, monstrously incorrect, but they're interesting calculations about how quickly we can eat through our food supply here. Um, I think that's another- in, fair, in, in fairness, I mean, I don't know about them. I, I didn't get to that part in the book, but in fairness to Malthus, who I think gets a bad rap, 
I'm not a Malthusian by any stretch yeah. of imagination, but retrospectively, his argument made a lot more sense than it did prospectively it did. because there was the scientific revolution the, and all these innovations radically changed, you know, sort of like a Moore's law of agricultural, you know, uh, uh, production. But if you were, if you were studying history from like the moment where Malthus was looking backwards, yeah. a, I'm not saying he was completely right, but he was a lot more right than we kind of, haha, what an idiot today. Yeah. Or, you know. Yeah. That I think is where Hamilton deserves an enormous amount of credit. And I'm not sure for as much as Hamilton is praised nowadays, I don't think people praise him for the right reasons mm -hmm. because Hamilton, I think, saw what was coming in a way that I'm not sure anybody in on this side of the Atlantic saw. And and oftentimes the attitude is, well, Madison should have known better. It's like how in 1791 could he possibly have predicted what the Industrial Revolution was going to do over the course of the rest of his life? Right. That's ridiculous. If anything, you what you want to do is give credit to Hamilton for seeing what He's, Hamilton could see that big changes were coming, whereas somebody like Malthus and like Madison would say, you know, society technologically, economically has been flat. You know, I mean, with I, I mean, and it's I mean, it hadn't been flat because of colonialism or, you know, and the mercantile system had enriched Europe and things like that. But Hamilton really grasped the capacity of capital to just transform the world. Madison didn't appreciate that, but I mean, that's just to Hamilton's credit. So I, anyway. yeah, I mean, like there's, I mean, there's some famous guy who says this, and I can't remember who, but it's in my book about how um, the average English citizen lived no better than the average Roman citizen did in a purely technological way, right? It's, it took the same amount of time to travel. You know, it took the, you basically had the same diet. You had the same kind of technology, um, in like 1700, 1750 or something like that. And I'm, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but if you're looking back on history as a guide to how you do things, the, the, the line is really, really flat for thousands of years. And then all of a sudden around 1700, you, starting in England, you start seeing it go up, but you could forgive someone for not recognizing it in that moment. You yes. know, everyone's still using, you know, animal-powered machinery for farming and you yeah. know, all the rest. Right? Exactly, yeah. So I, I think, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else who we... I like think they, they, they mentioned the Venetian Republic, right? They do. And I, I, I studied a little bit on the Venetian Republic stuff in part because that, um, the why nations fail, you know, that uh, it's uh, Asmalogu, it's got, he's got a Turkish name, I can't remember, and is a, other guy's, I think, Robinson. It's a great book. I mean, it's very, it's all about sort of, it, it's very institutional economics and it leaves out some things I don't think they should leave out, but the stuff in it is great. And they do a sort of a case study about the Venetian Republic. And, um, it's, it's a great example of this, this cycle of decay argument and a great example for the founding fathers, because what the Venetian Republic does is that the for a while, they are they're a legit republic. I mean, it's like a commercial republic. Like you get to be in part of the ruling. You get your name in the the gold book, and on the in the essentially the legislature by being a successful merchant. Right. And then over time, 
sort of public choice theory kicks in <laughs> and these guys are like, yeah, we don't want any new people in the book. And they, they, they close it off and they start to, to decay and then it all falls apart. Right. Um, which is a good sort of benchmark for a constitutional system where elections are constantly happening to prevent that kind of like solidification and aristification of things. Yeah. Right? I, th I think one thing I'd point out too about Locke is, you know, Locke is an apologist for the glorious revolution in, and, and the Americans are pushing beyond the glorious revolution. I mean, they, and I, and I think it's, I think it's a, it's worth remembering that Locke hedges a lot, right? And I, I mean, the second treatise is a great book and hugely influential, but to me, it just feels like an elaborate justification for what the Whigs were going to do anyway, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. And and I think the same thing with respect to his letter concerning toleration, right? Because, uh, you know, Locke very conveniently arrives through a series of, you know, seemingly passionless, rational assertions and implications from them exactly what his political patron wants him to do. And the Je credit to Jefferson and Madison, well, Jefferson more on this, that Jefferson, I mean, it's not quite right, I think, to say that he's wholly in debt to Locke in the sense that, you know, Je because the, the declaration is not just a statement of we're leaving the king. It's a statement that the only legitimate source of sovereignty is the people, which I think is implied by Locke, but Locke doesn't say that. I mean, that's the sort of thing that's going to get you expelled from all of continental Europe. Um, and likewise, Madison and Jefferson, um, in their fight to disestablish the Anglican church in Virginia, you know, they rely on Locke's letter concerning toleration, but they push it through to its ultimate conclusion, which is that, you know, if you're going to tolerate religion, that re like true toleration requires disestablishment. It requires you not to favor one religious group over another. And Locke was willing to look the other way on that. I mean, he himself was a nonconformist, um, but he was willing to look the other way on that. And, and, I, and so I think that Maybe the extent to which Locke ends up being influential is that Locke is the great theorist of the Glorious Revolution and the political settlement of the Glorious Revolution. And the American Revolution, I think, is appropriately understood as uh, part it, within the same tradition as the Glorious Revolution, as an assertion of our ancient rights and privileges against a grasping tyrant. And I don't think you need a contract theory of government to understand that, I think I would say. And I'm not even sure, you know, how, to what extent does that even really capture, you don't, the, what actually the English are doing. The English are just reasserting rights that they had possessed in one form or another for by that point, 500 some odd years. You don't need recourse to a state of nature to understand that government is obligated to do certain things. And when it doesn't do those things, you're allowed to get rid of them. I mean, the, the, I mean if, the, if anything, because, you know, the colonies, the American colonies, most of them are already around by 1689. And they're watching the events in, you know, the, well, they got rid of James II. And then in 1713, they skip over like 40 Catholic Stuarts. So, you know, that's that's kind of what, you know, the Glorious Revolution is an extension or, or it was extended by the American Revolution. I'm not sure how 
much lock is required. You know, the other thing about lock too is that, to what extent is it just a description of life in America as it actually was? Like America was for the settlers in many respects, a state of nature and that they were designing governments from nothing. And do you really need a theorist to explain that that's what you're doing? I mean, that's what you're doing, you know? So, so, so like, I, I, I hear you. And one of the things, not to make this about my book, but like, I, one of the things I like about Locke, I think Locke is wrong about it, epistemologically wrong. He's got, I mean, he's got all, and he's, he's wrong about majorities. He, like, he's really majoritarian in ways that, like, it's funny to listen to, like, Yoram Hazoni and some of these new nationalists talk about Locke as this, like, you know, um, you know, the, 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 basically not even the serpent, but the apple of forbidden knowledge that has ruined modernity and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and yet most liberal societies don't actually, liberal nations as they actually live their lives are not very Lockean in all sorts of ways. Like yeah. federalism is not in Locke, you know, none of that stuff. But the th you know, I agree with you that a lot of what Locke was doing was basically sort of like these CNBC anal analysts who, who talk up stocks they own, right? He was talking <laughs> up the glorious yeah. revolution yes, on was. the CNBC of his age. I, I agree there's a lot of that. In there. At the same time, this is one of the things that I, I, I am a sort of watered down Whiggish historian in one sense, is that most of the stuff that we celebrate on, the, on theoretical grounds with Madison, with Locke, with Jefferson and Hamlet, all these kinds of, you know, the, the Federalist Papers, they start in like seventh century England and other Germanic nations with these cultural institutions. Mm -hmm. So like the, the, um, you know, the fourth amendment can be traced back to this proposition that goes back to the seventh century about a man's home is his castle is essentially right. And so the, the I mean, Daniel Hanan's how the English uh, create invented liberty goes too far. It's too Whiggish. It's really good though, and he makes the case that a lot of the stuff that today we ground in theory really emerges from just the just the absolute historical weirdness of English people. And, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and so like a lot of these weird cultural norms and institutions, and so like you you follow this process about toleration. One of the reasons why the English were more tolerant than some of the other uh, European countries is that you never had an absolutist centralized king right. because uh, being an island nation, they didn't need to have a standing army. Without a standing army, the king can't impose himself. So you had these diverse sort of not quite Montesquieuian, but you know, diverse centers of checks and balances because local lords could be more powerful, powerful enough to hold off the king and his authority. And... Um, and then you have like Locke doing his shtick about, you know, toleration where we all have to be really, really tolerant and accept, you know, minority religions, but not the freaking Catholics, you know, <laughs> that, that goes too far. And then over time in the sort of the centrifuge, these cultural norms get refined into a political theory so that by the time you get Jefferson's notes on toleration or whatever it is in Virginia, it's not only do you have to accept Catholics, you got to accept Jews and Hindus, yeah. you know, and atheists. And, and atheists. Good Lord, right? Yeah. And I think that's, I, I originally wanted to call my book, and I wish I had, to be honest, uh, Tribe of Liberty, because what you want is to recultivate these tribal attachments to these notions of liberty rather than ground them all in theory. Because once you make them all about theory, they're much easier to sort of 
aren't all ideas equal kind of thing. Um, all right, so I, I want to move on because we we should do a little rank punditry, yes. but maybe the bridge to get us there is Madison, to a certain extent, is considered, if not the founding father of political parties, sort of maybe the John the Baptist of <laughs> political parties. Yes, right. I, mean, I, I guess, you know, you go into Van Buren, you get a different yes, case. But, he's but, making like, straight the path of, uh, of old Kinderhook. So what... What was his view? Originally, he didn't like parties, and then he made peace with them, and then kind of in a saucy kind of way started to like them, right? Walk me through sure. how that is. Well, you know, one of the problems with this is another reason why I wanted to write the book, because I, I think that there's still a lot of misconceptions about Madison, and, and unfortunately, the misconceptions now are sort of rooted in our use of words. So when we think about, well, what party were they? They were the Democratic Republican Party. That's not what they called themselves. Maybe at some point that phrase was used. I'm not sure where it came up. I have a theory, and I could be wrong. Maybe one of your listeners might know. But my sort of cynical theory is that it was invented by New Deal historians as part of their effort to appropriate Jefferson to the cause of Franklin Roosevelt. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. I could be wrong about that, but that is not a phrase. I mean, they definitely did try to appropriate Oh, yeah, they did. Um, But they called themselves the Republican Party. Um, And and I I think the reasons they do that are similar to the reasons that today's Republican Party called themselves the Republican Party. And it's important to understand they chose that word because of how they saw themselves. They saw themselves not as the members of a particular economic or social faction, even though for all intents and purposes they were. One of Madison's essays that he writes for the National Gazette, which was the party newspaper that he helped start, talks about banishing distinctions like that. So the the way they saw themselves was almost sort of like a wartime coalition party. Mm -hmm. There was a national emergency because Hamilton and the would-be high, you know, the would-be monarchists are trying to destroy our government. And so the reason they form a, a party is essentially their motive is to warn the public and to mobilize the public. Their feeling was... They never, Madison never said this outright, but it it comes through in a lot of his writings is that Washington does not get that he's being manipulated by Hamilton. Hamilton is is creating behind Washington, uh, using Washington as cover, is creating a permanent faction within Congress, basically using uh, the patronage from like in the form of government debt certificates and the bank is creating a permanent client group in Congress that's going to be loyal to him. Washington is not stopping this, so we have to take our case directly to the American people. Um, And so this is why, you know, the first great partisan action in the United States of America was creating a newspaper. The idea was to get the word out. This is also why they start doing endorsements. Like, they they nominate candidates. This guy will be a good advocate for your interests in, in, in the government. This is why they start doing circular letters. The whole thing is about informing the public. And that is what makes them 
different than parties in the sense that Edmund Burke would have understood them. Burke would have understood them as groups within the legislature, as gentlemen within the legislature. And Burke's argument is that contrary to the conventional wisdom, parties are can be good if the gentlemen are aligned with each other because of common principles. So that idea is used in the Republican Party, but there's also one there's also this idea, the Greek mythological figure of the Argus, right? The thousand-eyed creature. We have to keep an eye on them. Um, which is why, by the way, there's a bunch of not, not there's any, any more, but I'm pretty sure there's still a couple newspapers called the Argus, which mm-hmm. is like, why would they? That's why. That's Madison uses the m- mythology of the Argus in one of his in one of his um um, and one of his essays, this, this idea is that there's this anti-Republican faction in the government that is looking to destroy what we've done. And if we don't stop them, we're going to lose our republic and they, they're going to take it f- from us for good. So this is why the Republican Party gets founded. And it's but the other thing, what's which is interesting, it's also why Madison and then especially Monroe allow it to decay. Because after the Federalists have effectively been defeated, the feeling is is that the crisis is past, and therefore we're going to go back to the old state of things. And that separates them from our modern conception of parties, whereas we take parties to be a natural part of just politics— Madison saw it as being a temporary expedient for an emergency. So, moving to today, uh, this is— as listeners would tell you with either eye rolling or anticipation, um, one of my enduring themes on here is that most of our problems in politics can be traced to, to one extent or another, to um, weak parties. Um, you get strong partisanship when you have weak parties. And so, like, as you know, and I've made this point many, many times about, you know, newspapers, you know, I think Andrew Jackson even had a newspaper run out of the White House. Um, but newspapers used to be aligned with the parties. That's why you have the Arkansas Democratic Gazette, you know, and that kind of Absolutely. stuff. And um, uh, and one of the reasons why I think we are in the mess that we're in is we've democratized parties. You know, as I was just talking about with Steve Tellos last week, democracy is supposed to be the stuff you do between parties, not within parties. And um, primaries and the weakness of parties that comes with the campaign finance stuff has led to a situation where party functions are now being outsourced to institutions that are doing party work by proxy, often without even realizing it. And you certainly see this in the ideological right and left-wing press, but you also, you know, the New York Times was a few years ago, they were like literally, they ran an editorial on the front page telling people to call Congress for whatever, you know I mean? It's like, uh, I'm not saying that's bad in and of itself, but like there's a, the way I was watching MSNBC, you know, earlier this morning and um, Heidi Presbola, who I, I think is generally a pretty good reporter. She's talking about the beginning of the, she's supposed to be doing a straight news report and she's talking about, you know, early voting this morning for the Virginia governor's race. And she says, well, it's no way to predict, you know, what this will all mean for the 2022 midterms, but it's pretty clear that if McAuliffe loses, it makes things worse. 
It's like, well, wait a second. I thought you were supposed to be a reporter and you're just, you yeah. know, and you see this kind of thing all over the place where um, there are think tanks, there are other institutions, there are media outlets that, and there are pundits. And, it, and I'm very familiar with the tendency because I've done it in the past where you think your job as a conservative pundit is to figure out how to make the case for Republicans. And, or if you think your job as a, as a liberal is how you make your case for Democrats. And I would rather more of that stuff got scooped up and put where it belonged in the parties and in Congress. And I'm a, I'm a zealous uh, promoter of Ben Sass's uh, little soliloquy at the beginning of the Kavanaugh hearings where he says, Congress is where politics is supposed to happen. And if you don't have it happen here, it spills out into other places. And all of a sudden you get Southwest pilots saying, let's go, Brandon, you know? Um, and, and so anyway, I think that the, the reason why everything is being politicized in our lives is because the institutions that are supposed to be political have lost the ability to do their jobs. Yeah, that is a, that is a really insightful observation. I think I agree. Um, I, I think that the parties, the function, parties serve a lot of functions in society, in in democratic society. Um, it was one of my favorite quotes uh, from political science literature from E. E. Schatzneider. And I'm I gonna, love E. E. Schatzneider. Yeah. He said uh, this, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said the the public is a sovereign with two words: yes or no. To have those words mean anything you have to present questions to the people, which means that in a democracy, the power to set the agenda is an extremely important power that because the public is not capable as an entity to set the agenda. Yes or no could be answers to any questions. Um, and this is what parties, I mean, that's sort of what Madison's idea was with the Republican Party. We need to get our agenda is to focus primarily on Hamilton's economics and then later on the foreign crisis between the British and the French. This is what we want to talk about. This is what we want your opinion on yes or no about. And the challenge I think we have in our country is Van Buren, who, as you alluded to, is sort of the is the great theorist of parties because he's not embarrassed by them. Mm -hmm. Parties are a good thing. And I think in his biography, I think he actually says, we need we have to manfully recognize, this is some great 1800 sort of rhetoric, like we just need to own up to the fact that parties are necessary. And we need to think seriously about our parties as political institutions that are as essential to government as any of the branches of government. And we don't do that in this country. We've never done that in this country. We still think parties are icky. And after, I mean, it happened for a variety of reasons, but you know, like, you know, when people think back to Teddy Roosevelt's efforts to uh, take the Republican nomination in 1912, and he's denied, your average are like, that's not fair. He won the primaries. Okay, well, that's all well and good, but it's not, the, it, whose party does it belong? Whose party is it, right? The parties don't need to be democratized in the sense that uh, they, the people themselves should, you know, run the parties. You know, you know the party was, it was the, there was like the Republicans were like, that's all well and good. This is our party. You want your own party? Go form one. We formed this one right. 60 years ago. We're pretty happy with it, buddy. You know, and also, by the way, you left. So, you know, whatever. That, and 
there's something similar like in 68, you know, well, Humphrey didn't run in any primaries. How can it win the nomination? Because it's not the primaries to give. We decided it was. And I think this is the problem that we have, I think, in our in the country, is that the problem with parties that do not have input from the, the, their voters end up getting can be corrupted. And you can think about designing parties in the same way you think about designing uh, designing um, a, a government itself. If the parties are purely self-appointed, that can lend itself to corruption, mm -hmm. which is what we saw in the Gilded Age, right? We see that in the Gilded Age. I think it's also fair to say that we see that there is a certain kind of self-appointed corruption on display in Chicago in 68. Okay, so it's good to have to open the parties a little bit, okay? But that's not what we did. We opened them all the way. We hollowed them out. We've uh, completely um, destroyed their ability to set the agenda. And the problem is with that is that other people are now setting the agenda. Right. Other people are saying, so the question is, who's setting the agenda? Well, I think, you know, I think rich corporations are setting the agenda. Um, you know, they own the news, <laughs> let's be honest, they do. The agenda is, you know, and you, you think about it, the agenda being set on a day-to-day -day basis. Why are we talking about one thing but not talking about another thing? In a world of 7 billion people, there are a variety of things that we could talk about. In a country of 330 million people, there are a variety of things that we could be talking Why do we talk about certain things but not other things? And, you know, the attitude a hundred years ago among reformers was, well, the parties are bad at determining what we should be talking about. But the solution was never, okay, let's make them good at that. The solution was effectively, let's destroy them. And so the agenda is still being set. And as I wrote in my, my second book, Republic No More, I was really troubled by the inordinate power of interest groups, economic interest groups to exert uh, their influence over the agenda of our government. But since then, I've become extremely troubled by the hardcore, uncompromising ideological activists are now able to set the agenda for the public, which I think is, I've grown increasingly troubled by that over the last couple of years. Um, and I, yeah, because I was going to push back on you on this a little bit, because I, I, I get the oligarch argument, you know, it was in your last book and it's, and Republic No More was in there too. And I get, I, but I wish, frankly, that corporations for greedy bottom line reasons were having more influence over a lot of the editorial product of a lot of mainstream media because the, the real problem we, and, and I'm not saying that they don't, right? I mean, I think you're right in broad brushstrokes that they have influence and stuff, but the real problem we have is you know this this brings us back to this majoritarian stuff which we were talking about earlier is that the la democrat activists talk a lot about majoritarianism we're majoritarians we the senate is undemocratic because california is the same amount of senators as rhode island you know um although they never say rhode island no, so they always gotta say wyoming. wyoming right because wyoming bad and um uh and the thing, though, is that the actual policy agenda that they have, there's some majoritarian, majoritarian things. And I think you can make the case that child tax credits is a kind of a majoritarian, you know, thing. But, uh, like, changing the, like, defunding the police is not, right? 
or you know, one of my big bugaboos is is calling uh, mothers birthing people. Um, like, there is no coalition of the majority that you can cobble together that is in favor of this. And um, and so the part of the problem is is that, and we see this with Biden. This is the whole backdrop of the David Shore populism argument: is that ideological cadres, a sort of Gramscian cadres, are using the Democratic Party as a Trojan horse for fundamentally anti-majoritarian positions. African-Americans in this country, a majority of African-Americans have consistently in polls opposed um, racial quotas in all sorts of areas of life. California just passed, uh, re just refused to repeal a 20-year-old, 30-year-old ban on quotas in, in higher education. And, um, and yet, these same sort of hyper-ideological cadres who have outsized influence in this corporate media that that you're decrying, um, I have more influence, let's say, than like the CEO of whatever the parent corporate, the Scheinhardt wig company, which owns, you know, <laughs> right. NBC or whatever. Yeah. Um, would that the Scheinhardt wig company would have had would, a little more, yeah. a little more influence. And I think, and so like my point, like the Madisonian vision of parties or as a, on a coalit broad, broadly speaking, is that the party is this thing that would be able to tell various factions within their coalition, hey, look, you know, you produce cotton, you produce uh, potatoes, you have differences, you know, about all sorts of things about shipping and, and tariffs and whatnot, but you have more in common with each other than you have differences, particularly compared to the people who are all about making copper wire. Right. And so if you're willing to take two thirds of a loaf, um, and if you're willing to take two thirds of a loaf, we can form a big enough coalition that we can stick to the copper wire people. Yeah. Right. And it was a way of imposing compromise within a coalition so that the, the ultimate gain of winning a series of elections was um, net positive for you, even though it wasn't ideal. Now we have a situation where ideologically oriented groups and congressmen and senators don't have to look to the party for funding, for resources, for um, uh, communications, for messaging, any of that kind of stuff. They can, um, and, and, and institutions like the NRA or Planned Parenthood, they have a direct relationship with their donors and it is in their interest to push for 100% on everything. And um, I was talking recently with a, a senator who was talking about how, like, there are, there are senators who have monetized um, almost to the decimal place how much money they make in direct donations when they do Hannity or do Laura or do Maddow or, or whatever. And those small direct donations encourage demagogic pandering. They encourage this, this idiotic obsession with being anti-establishment. You know, I mean, you have Ted Cruz, who I, I still like personally better than a lot of people think is humanly possible, given his reputation. But Ted, you know, he's married to a director of Goldman Sachs. He's a two-term, three-term senator. He's, um, he was a, you know, a solicitor general of Texas. He went to Harvard and Harvard Law. And he's talking about how we got to fight these elites. <laughs> and it's like he's in the most exclusive club in the world. And, um, 
And so there's all this performative stuff, which the parties have no say in anymore. And I don't know how you fix this stuff if, if everybody is doing this for the benefit of their own, their own social media accounts and their own direct fundraising and not for the good of the party, while at the same time invoking partisanship as this ironclad partisan, you know, tribal rule. I just don't see how things get better. Yeah. And I, you know, I agree. And I, I, I've been very dispirited over the last couple of years about politics and have sort of withdrawn it in many respects. Um, and, you know, one of the things that really troubles me about this is that these groups who have all of this influence on what senators say, because congressmen say, because of the fine, the way politics is financed now and the way exposure is gained, they represent a tiny fraction of the American people. Yeah. A vanishingly small percentage. I mean, the most heavily watched, you know, I don't know what the most heavily watched show on cable news is, but it doesn't get more than 3 million people, right? right. How many, what was the vote? How many people voted in 2020? Like 170 million yeah. or some insane number? So why is it that a show that appeals to 3 million people is allowed to set the agenda in a country where 170 million people vote. You know, that just, it just is such a dispiriting sort of development. And, you know, the, the extent to which social media, I think has really exacerbated this as well by encouraging siloed thinking and siloed appeals. There's no more like, the Ed Sullivan, the Ed Sullivan show, right? The Ed Sullivan show had like, yeah, they had the Beatles on, but sometimes they have like Lawrence Welk on, right? Because they had to appeal. Because who's watching that show? Grandma and granddad, mom and dad, and junior and and sister are watching. So you had to have something on there that would appeal to everybody. It had to be broad and down the middle. And you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to be broad and down the middle to raise money for politics anymore. And so what does that mean for, for you know, our, our, our public discourse? It means that the, the things that we choose to talk about and the solutions that are considered seriously put on the table are being determined by these very narrow, siloed, very arrogant, self-absorbed people who live in in complete ignorance of how diverse this country is. Yeah. That's the thing that gets me all the time is, you know, people talking like they, that they actually know America. America is so large, so populous, so diverse. It staggers my imagination, you know, and, and but, but people, you know, well, this is, this is what real America, it's like, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. You're just extrapolating from your own neighborhood, which don't get me wrong. You know, I live in a particular neighborhood and people, people do that all the time, but people who are extrapolating from their own experiences and their own values onto a national stage should not be the only people determine financing politics and then determining what we're talking about and determining what things are allowed to be passed versus what aren't. It's just, it's obscene. Um, I want to ask one last question. I should have asked it earlier, um, but then we got to wrap it up. Um, so, as as you know, I'm deeply influenced by Yuval Levin on a bunch of these kinds of questions, and one of the things he's convinced me of is uh, that probably C-SPAN was a mistake, <laughs> and not in the sense. I mean, I I I, I think it's a re a truly patriotically conceived of enterprise and Brian Lamb is incredibly decent 
serious, sweet person. But when I say C-SPAN, I mean just turning cameras on everything, right? And um, and we can talk about Newt and what he did with the C-SPAN cameras in the 90s and all that. But the only reason I bring this up is that, and I mentioned this to Yuval, and, and he he thought it was really interesting too and hadn't really thought about it in these terms. You know, part of the pro- part of Yuval's point about if you put cameras on everything, it makes it impossible to do real transactional politics because you're performing for, because if you're a union boss and you're in a smoke-filled room, you can say, okay, look, this is what I can give you. I can cut our pay 10%, but you got to give me something on the back end, whatever. If you're doing it and everyone can see you doing it, you just can't do it, right? And so you lose the peer-to-peer nature of political negotiation and political processes. And, you know, the the original smoke-filled room, more or less, was the Constitutional Convention. <laughs> yes, it know? was. And no way you could have done that with an audience watching, right? So I was listening to, I'm a big fan of this, this Revolutions podcast series, Mike Duncan. And with all that in mind, and I've been talking about that, this stuff on, on, on here for years now. And then there are like two or three, maybe four times, he just cavalierly mentions that one of the major drivers of the, the descent into chaos and totalitarianism that defined the French Revolution was that in almost all of these kinds of constitutional convention type meetings, they were open to the public. And so you had essentially probably drunk, you know, willing to become mobs, crowds, jeering at people who were trying to talk about compromise and cheering people who were saying they were outraged. And it catalytically fueled extremism and sort of anti-coalitionism. Um, in your reading about the founding and all of these guys, was the secrecy thing something that they actually paid attention to and thought of consciously? Was it something that they talked about, about got to do some of these things behind closed doors? Or was it just sort of Providence contingency? No, they were, they took an oath. They were, they were, they did that purposefully for that reason. They, that the feeling was, is that they couldn't be honest with each other. Um, yeah, that was a purposeful decision. You know, they, you know, they debated the Dra- the Jay Treaty in private too, because the, and then one of, I don't remember the senator, but one of the Republican senators leaked it to the newspapers in the country, just like lit up like a tinderbox because that treaty was so unpopular. Um, so yeah, the, there was, the attitude was that if we're going to be, uh, if we're going to talk with each other and, and be candid with each other, then we need discretion. And I think- you know, if you think about the history of of the Congress and before C-SPAN, you know, there were um, politicians and statesmen who used the floor of the chamber as advertisements for their ideas and who were trying to reach to larger audience. I mean, that's the uh, that's what Daniel Webster's doing in the Webster Hain debate, mm-hmm. right? Webster Hain's trying to make a deal with Missouri about western land and Webster and and Webster steps in and be like, "How dare you make a deal with the nullifiers?" and then they go, you know, and, and Webster was doing that to sort of promote his ideas and also himself. Henry Clay did the same thing. I mean, oh, Henry- to bring up E.E. E. Schatzneider, he also has a concept called expanding the scope of conflict. Right. Where if you're in a losing side of right. a fight, yep. 
you notify members, potential members of your coalition to bring more people to your side. Yes, exactly. Right? That's sort of what Webster was doing. And Clay did that to enormous effect during his entire career in Congress, that he was just, you know, and, and the, but those, well, there's a couple differences. For starters, those speeches were meant to be read. Mm-hmm. So they're actually good speeches as opposed to like the, the nonsense that's spouted on the floor. But the other thing is that those didn't happen every day. The day-to-day business gets put into the journal and then Henry Clay, you know, basically takes up three days of talk and then we go back to our normal business. And that is what can't happen now because everything is filmed now. Mm-hmm. And and I and so I think that is the challenge where you you could do bargaining on the floor on the normal course of business that would show up in the journal, but it's not going to have the same impact as it does on television. And, and, and I, and I also think yeah, that but like the most pernicious part about television cameras now is this committees yes. is where you have yes. each Senator asking basically the exact same question because they need to send a video clip of them demagoguing something and send it back to their constituents. And it's hollowed out the capacity of Congress to exercise effective oversight on controversial issues where congressional oversight would probably be the most useful right? Um, because that's the stuff that they're just preening for. Um, yeah, I, I think that it's unfortunate. It's look, it's one of those things where, you know, democracy and openness and sunshine, you know, that's great and everything, but we have to be mindful of human beings as they actually are. And we need to not just assume that more is better. I think, and, and it, I, I hate to say too, I think C-SPAN has been a mistake. I think it's it's turned Congress itself into a spectacle, mm-hmm. which it shouldn't be. I mean, I watch sometimes on C-SPAN too, and I see senators on both sides of the aisle bringing down like these giant boards with like these memes. And I'm like, for goodness sake, man, you're in the United States Senator. You're You're a senator. Act like a like you're you're in the Senate. Daniel Webster was in the Senate. Henry Clay was in the Senate. Act like you have some self-respect. What are you bringing cat memes down onto the floor of the United States Senate? Then they all do it too. Yeah, it's really depressing. See, like this is the thing about what you were saying about how Madison didn't didn't invest too much faith in any player in the system, not the masses, not the elites, not the aristocracy, not the, you know, the idea that somehow, look, I I like the American people and I I think they can be trusted with a lot of freedom and all these kinds of things. I'm not arguing against that kind of stuff, but like, think about a realm in your life where there isn't on some occasions the need to talk in private with another decision maker, right? I mean, I don't, we don't talk about everyone's performance here at the dispatch in big open meetings, you know, um, you don't, parents don't have every conversation about their kids with their kids in earshot, right? Teachers don't talk about their students with all the kids in earshot, but somehow this, this sort of Jeffersonian faith in the people has infected our understanding of politics to the point where it's not that the American people can't handle the information. It's that the politicians can't handle the people knowing all of the information. And so they don't do, they don't act like Burkean statesmen. They act like servants 
of whichever mob is sending $25 a month in small donations. And yeah. that's the problem. It is a problem. It's it's it politics has become a really to me during over the course of my life of my adulthood, it has become a really pathetic spectacle. I, I mean, and I, and I think that's infested its way all through our society. I don't think anybody really has faith in politics to resolve disputes that exist within society, which is really not good because that's the purpose of politics. Politics is the means by which we resolve disputes on things that cannot be resolved through commerce and trade, you know, which is a lot of stuff. A lot of, a lot of tensions are just left to simmer rather than be resolved, even if they could be resolved reasonably well because of all these perverse incentives that are not part of our Constitution, but have been added. Like the Constitution is a broad framework. It was up to us to fill in the details. And we've made some structural institutional changes, even during my lifetime, that have served us incredibly poorly. Yeah. So on that cheerful note. <laughs> on that. Jay Cost, thank you so much for being on. Uh, the book is uh, James Madison, America's First Politician. Um, uh, available where all fine books are available, um, at least in the English language. I can't promise, you know, for our overseas listeners quite yet. Um, thank you again for being on. Thank you for having me. All right. I would normally say uh, Jay has left the studio, but in fact, he's just sitting quietly in the studio right over here. Um, and uh, I thought it was a fun, spirited conversation that will... Uh, um, there will be some, you know, obviously some of the party stuff I talk about a lot on this thing, but, um, you know, I come from the great journalistic school of ranting at people I'm interviewing and then saying, do you agree with me? And uh, it works out pretty well. So with that, um, I want to say thanks to everybody for all the support. Uh, the We're doing this big gift subs subs subscription drive and it's going really well. Um, and um, more exciting things are to come and some maybe more controversial things, which I'll talk about another time. And uh, thanks again for listening. And thanks again to Jay Cost for being here. And I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs>